1862, I'm the mayor of Nashville, and I've got too many prostitutes in town. What should I do? We'll find out what happened from Thomas Lowry on Civil War Talk Radio. Are you a busy event planner, an auction chair, or development coordinator? Well, AuctionHelp.com is designed for you. Find out why hundreds of nonprofit organizations just like yours have chosen AuctionHelp.com to take the stress out of the benefit auction process. Hi, I'm Russ Dalnack, professional auctioneer, and I'm also someone who can help you coordinate your next auction. That's right. We have a special staff of auction management experts to give you that auctioneer to, to get the right person behind the microphone that will encourage your guests to be generous. We can also meet with your auction committee throughout the whole planning process. We're going to give you helpful hints that could add as much as 25% to next year's totals. We're going to train and monitor your auction volunteers at night of the event. We're going to help you run your auction, including the registration, the data entry, the filing, the cashiering, the recording, where to get those valuable items, how to develop your audience, and all those things. Log on, auctionhelp.com. We're here to help with your next Next auction. Wherever you are, you deserve World Spa, a day spa for both men and women specializing in Western therapies with age-old Eastern techniques. All World Spa providers are professionally licensed specialists in their fields. We provide spa treatments for all schedules, from as little as 30 minutes to all-day programs. World Spa also has a spiritual library where you can relax and enjoy our collection of books, videos, and audio tapes. World Spa is open seven days a week by appointment and features a variety of special treatments, spa services, facials, exfoliation, and much more. We also offer products such as beauty and skin treatments, health drinks, herbal teas, and food supplements. World Spa also accommodates groups of five or more so you can make it a full and special day. Come enjoy the World Spa difference. Call us today at 619-624-0506 or visit us on the web at www.worldspas.org. Listen, the world is talking. World Talk Radio. Interested in advertising on any of our shows? Please click the advertise link on the homepage or send an email to ads at worldtalkradio.com or you can click on the sponsor this show link on any of the show pages. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Today, talking with Dr. Thomas P. Lowry, author of Sex in the Civil War, Stories the Soldiers Wouldn't Tell. Actually, the title is reversed, but uh, there we are. Tom, we were talking in our first segment about some of the difficulties of source material, uh, the reasons why this important topic has not really been written about before. Uh, But certainly, one of the appealing parts of the topic is just some of the fabulous stories that, that came out, and I wonder if you'd describe for the listeners that uh, how Nashville handled its, its prostitution problem. Well, they, they first, uh, um, uh, a perspective, Nashville was a major um, transshipment point and collecting point for the Union armies. And uh, railroads came there, steamboats came there, and as soon as the soldiers came there, um, with money in their pocket, uh, prostitutes came from all over the north, and maybe some from the south. 
And pretty soon they had lots and lots of venereal disease. In fact, at one point, uh, somewhere around 30 or 40 percent of the soldiers were sick with venereal disease. So even before the battle started, they had a high casualty rate. Uh, the military government there put a thousand prostitutes on a train and sent them to Louisville without telling the Louisville people. And in the few weeks before they got back, uh, prostitutes came from all over the north to fill in the empty beds. So found that they soon had more prostitutes. And the military government decided on a different tax, so they ordered that the hundred most disruptive prostitutes in Nashville be put on a steamboat and shipped north. Uh, this was a brand-new steamboat, the Idaho. Uh, for steamboat bus, there were two steamboat Idahos. Captain Newcomb owned this brand-new one, and he was ordered to take all these women north. And he objected. He said, I have a contract to carry freight, but this isn't freight. These are prostitutes and very difficult ladies. And if my boat is used for this, it will be known forever as the floating whorehouse. They said, your contract says to carry whatever cargo we tell you, and that's what you got. So they all came on board, and a lot of them were really sick, probably with you know venereal disease as well as the usual things of typhoid and so forth. And Captain Newcomb said, well, how about some medicine or a doctor? They said, well, you're on your own. You take care of them, and you feed them, and we'll settle the bill later. So he started up the river. And, of course, the telegraph moves faster than a steamboat. And everywhere he stopped, authorities came down and said, you can't touch here, you can't unload here. Uh, he had a little trouble with soldiers swimming out to the boat and, and the prostitutes screaming, we want them on board, we want the money, and the uh, crew members with boat hooks trying to push the soldiers away and the prostitutes whacking the, uh, uh, the boatmen on the head and so forth. And then the prostitutes were mad because they weren't making any money and they were sick and they were hungry, so they were breaking all the new porcelain and all the new crockery and all the cut glass and so forth. So by the time they got to Cincinnati, the boat was a shambles. Cincinnati wouldn't let them come ashore either. So after about a month total, they went back to Nashville and unloaded the same girls that had left Nashville. Captain Newcomb went ashore and asked to be paid. They said, well, it's hung up someplace, the administration. He finally sold the boat and went to Washington, D.C. and camped out in Stanton's office for a week before he finally got a voucher to be paid for his boat. So if anyone done contracting with the government, you can know things can go very, very wrong. Well, that... Uh... Now, what was the name of the boat again? Idaho, and there's an E on the end for some I, reason. I, I have to say, if this were a screenplay, they would make make you change that because it's such a dumb joke that, that it wouldn't uh, well, even fly. Yes, yes. And yet that's the history, uh, art, life imitates bad art here. Oh, well, yeah, it, it, it became art, too. That, that, you know, like everything else, you know, and now for the rest of the story, um, the same guy that wrote uh, street, uh, Subways are for Sleeping, uh, wrote a book called A Shipment of Tarts, which was a novel uh, based on that, and he sold the movie rights, and they were going to have Raquel Welch playing the kind of chief prostitute, but they couldn't agree on you know some sort of things, and the, the movie never got made, so it almost became a movie. I, I was, I'm surprised it hasn't. I mean, it seems really ready-made for, for Hollywood treatment. If you can take you know, Pretty Woman and make, make street prostitutes into adorable characters... You could certainly do wonders with with a ship like this. Oh, in, in the novels, he has the girls stripped down just to their panties, uh, shoveling coal into the boilers. Ah. Their their naked breasts glistening in this in this firelight. Well, you know, yes, it's true Hollywood. It, it, it's it's someone's going to make a million dollars here. Uh, good luck to you. I hope you can do that. Um, <laughs> uh, 
Now, you, you mentioned at the beginning, though, that there's certainly a serious aspect to all this, that prostitution and, and the venereal disease that was spread was a major military issue on both sides. Absolutely. Uh, you quoted 30% as many uh, the Union soldiers suffered uh, from ailments. Well, in, in different places at different times. Um, uh, the camp followers uh, you know, didn't have Ferraris, uh, so they, they could only come to the troops when the troops were you know, stopped someplace. Uh, they didn't hustle down you know, the, the trail after them. So uh, in places where there were major gathering points and no battles, you had lots of prostitutes and lots of VD. The troops which were on the march, you know, marching 10, 20, 30 miles a day, uh, nobody had the you know, time or money or opportunity. So it depends on where it was. The California troops um, set some sort of a record. People don't think of California as special in the Civil War, but the California troops were number one. They had the highest rates of VD of any troops, uh, 50%. Any, in, during any one year, half the California troops were sick with gonorrhea uh, or uh, syphilis. And, and these guys marched from Sacramento all the way to southern New Mexico. So I think there should be a medal or maybe even a bronze statue uh, to commemorate this. So um, th- th- when the national program of legalized prostitution got underway, they dropped the rate down to about 5%. And almost all of those were soldiers coming back from furlough. Now, legalized prostitution, how did that work? Very well. Uh, that's not the answer you're looking for. But, um, but it, it was under military law. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, martial law was in Nashville, and the military commander, whatever he said, became the law. And so they set up a program and advertised and put up handbills and so forth that said, you know, anyone plying their trade or avocation as a lady of the evening uh, will have two things. She will have a license and you can get the license at such and such address, and a weekly certificate of health. And um, at first the prostitutes, you know, like most you know, small business people, uh, didn't trust the government, so they had to be brought in at bayonet point. But uh, the doctor, um, Cushing, who was in charge of this, uh, was a very clever doctor. He did something quite unusual. He treated the girls very well. Uh, he got a nice uh, clinic location that was kind of secluded. Uh, they kept it warm uh, in the winter and cool in the summer. Uh, they gave them privacy. They spoke to them politely. And in a couple of weeks, the, girl, the, the word went out. The girl said, hey, this is okay. They'll take good care of you, and you won't get sick, and you won't die, and, and they're nice to you. So they soon had 100% compliance, and the women would come in every week uh, for their inspection, if they were um, found to be diseased, they would be sent for free to a hospital, and the hospital was supported by the fees that they were charged for the license and for the inspection. And it worked out very well and reduced the rate of VD uh, to about a tenth of what it had been before and just seemed to be you know, successful in, in every way. And this was replicated in Memphis briefly as well. Yes, yes. The authorities in Memphis studied it, and they adopted uh, the same program uh, about six or eight months later. But in general, we see in, in American military history, this is not how we do it. Uh, the, the French and British in World War I had uh, brothels run by the government with inspected uh, prostitutes. Well, and jumping you... ahead to the Second World War, the Army supervised and ran uh, the prostitution business in Honolulu. 
Is that right? The United yeah. U.S. Army didn't. Okay. Uh, and, and I, I think in World War One, the, the whole it was all abstinence and and. Uh, oh yeah, uh, we had a concentration camp in New Jersey during World War One, where they rounded up fifteen thousand girls and held them, you know, with no legal proceedings whatsoever. So the, the idea was simply just just don't do it. Yeah, uh, don't don't and, do it. And that's not historically has not been a successful approach. Of course not. But there are political, uh, moral, social reasons why the American public has not accepted. That's still true today. And still would not accept uh, the government formally endorsing any kind of of legalized prostitution uh, for soldiers in in any circumstances. But it was tried, you say, in Memphis and Nashville and and with some success. Now, you mentioned if someone did have venereal disease, the doctors would treat them. But this was the age before antibiotics. What could they do? Well, uh, it wasn't as good as today with penicillin, obviously. Um, The treatment for syphilis... Um, was first uh, for, uh, the, uh, was mercury, and mercury came into use for treating syphilis in 1498 with the first great syphilis epidemic in Europe, and and that was, was brought back by Columbus's sailors from the New World. Well, <laughs> you could get ten historians together and get ten opinions on this. <laughs> uh, there is some evidence it was in the New World before, and Columbus brought it back. There's also some evidence that it might have origin elsewhere. And um, in my book on Lewis and Clark that came out about 10 months ago, it, it summarizes all the evidence for and against. Uh, I haven't the, seen that the, book. I'll, I'll have to take a look at that. Yeah, it's called Venereal Disease and the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Interesting. University of Nebraska. Okay. So so they used mercury. You had that, that great line from England in the 18th century. What was that? Uh... Oh, yes. A, a night with Venus, a lifetime with mercury. <laughs> because the mercury treatment took a long time, was extremely toxic. Um, it would rot out your facial bones, uh, make your teeth fall out, um, make your gums bleed. Um, it was just really rough. But back then, syphilis was so virulent that for many people, being really sick from the mercury was better than dying from syphilis. And in my book, there's a picture of a soldier uh, with his legs rotting off, which is from the Army Medical Corps archives. There are a couple of illustrations in your book that, that I assure you serve the sort of scared straight purpose. You, you look at those pictures and think, hmm, I'm, I'm not going to veer off the straight and narrow, uh, even though, of course, today there are treatments uh, for syphilis. Uh, but to see the fate of those soldiers is, is just horrifying. Yes. <laughs> in a word, yes. The uh, syphilis, as you describe it in, in the book, has goes through three stages, and, and one of which is, I guess, latent, where you don't have any symptoms for a long time. Well, that used to be the belief, but now looking at it more closely, um, if, if you know what to look for and what to ask about, uh, even the so-called latent stage um, can have symptoms, but they were overlooked. The sudden episodes of blindness, which go away and come back, uh, episodes of deafness, uh, weird shooting pains, um, now seem to be one aspect of the what used to be called uh, the latent period. And and I guess this is, uh, I would have to say, the most horrifying thing that I found in the entire book was the, the number of soldiers who contracted this disease went through the initial stages with, with obvious symptoms, and then they subside, and, and the, the so-called latent stage sets in. And then they go home. The war ends. They go home, think not aware that they have this that they are carrying this disease apparently because it's no longer showing any symptoms 
and they spread it to their their families. That's right. Uh, back in the north and the south, and and the echoes of the war are, are felt years later when the third stage sets in and they die a horrible death, and or their offspring or their spouses suffer from it. Yes, a friend of mine, Bob Waite, who has passed away, was a Richmond historian, an interesting character in his own right, and he used to hang around with the um, the old time uh, attendants at the veterans' hospitals throughout the South. And they told him that a very large percentage of the soldiers um, who were sick and dying there uh, long after the war had, quote, softening of the brain, close quote, mm. which is probably tertiary syphilis. Mm. But, of course, nobody wanted to be quoted on this. And I've seen some correspondence with one of the Union veterans' homes in which um, uh, the pension people were trying to find out what the person had died of, and the director of the home said, basically, it's none of your business, which means that there was something to conceal. Right. So, so the, these diseases echoed on down through the years. Yes, and almost impossible to find any data because of the shame and the bad medical records and the in, intentional concealment. Now, uh, another aspect of, of sexuality for which shame and, and bad records uh, make it almost impossible to tell what's going on is, is the don't ask, don't tell question of homosexuality in Civil War armies. Uh, You must not have found a great deal of evidence. Uh, Uh, Almost none in the Army court-martials, quite a bit in the Navy court-martials. Why that is, you know, who knows? Um, One of the saws from archaeology is the the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Certainly soldiers, two people to a tent and being out in the woods and, and being on sentry duty at night uh, as pairs, uh, there were opportunities for, for sexual behavior between men. Um, but we found maybe at the absolute most half a dozen trials. Uh, well, one really astonishing one was a trial of a, um, a lieutenant colonel from one of the New York regiments, and the transcripts there are, are quite vivid. Said, you know, Colonel so and so came into my night at month, uh, excuse me, into my tent at night and attempted to put my penis into his mouth. No, that well, seems it, fairly direct. Yes, there's not a lot of euphemism there. No. Um, and the three or four lieutenants testified against him. Other people said all those lieutenants are congenital liars. It got everybody involved. It got uh, General Wool involved. Um, oh, this guy was just a wild man. Uh, he apparently was an equal opportunity molester because when he was stationed in New Mexico before the war, uh, he was court-martialed for illegal use of government property in which he used an army wagon to haul a load of whores to a fandango. Hmm. So he was a busy guy. Yeah, and just an equal opportunity. Now, one of the current controversies in Civil War era studies is the question of whether President Lincoln himself was gay. Oh, uh, Dr. Tripp's it, book. I, I, I think that's utter nonsense. And I, I wonder what you thought of it. C.A. Tripp wrote a book published in 2005, uh, shortly after his death. Yeah, I, I don't I don't think it, it's good research. Uh, I think Dr. Tripp stretched every possible point. Uh, sure, Lincoln shared the same bed with Joshua Speed for years. Uh, was that homosexual? You know, who knows? Uh, probably not. Um, but also the you know the sociology and, and interpretation of things in life has changed. Uh, nobody was homosexual in the Civil War because the word hadn't been invented until 1898. 
Nobody was gay in the Civil War because until about 20 years ago it meant happy. Um, uh, a guy named Jonathan Kent uh, wrote a whole thing about love between men in the Civil War in which um, he tries to point out that you know people could be very close, uh, men could hold hands and so forth, but that nobody thought much of it. And, and today it's all become politicized. You know, are you straight or are you gay? Like, you know, everybody's in one bottle or another. It, it, it really was a different era. The uh, You look at the poetry or song lyrics uh, of the time and the, the affection, the open affection uh, shown between comrades, between soldiers, uh, was considered something noble. Yes. And, and, not, uh, and, and the idea of a sexual overtone was... was not present. Yeah, the only public handholding we've seen recently is the Saudi oil minister holding hands with George Bush. Yeah, and that that's a uh, opens yet another story. But the music comes up again. We'll take another short break. We'll come back and I'd like to ask more about uh, the court martial records and President Lincoln while we're on the subject. But we'll take a few minutes off and come back with Dr. Thomas P. Lowry on Civil War Talk Radio.